Hello, and welcome to Profiles, a program that introduces to WFIU listeners interesting people from Indiana, the United States, and the world. I'm Owen Johnson. Our guest on this occasion is Petr Burian, only the fourth ambassador ever from Slovakia to the United States. Pan Velvislanets, vitajte do Bloomingtonu, and welcome to Profiles. Okay. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. You grew up in Czechoslovakia in an interesting time, the 1960s and the 1970s. What are your biggest memories from that time? You know, I do not have any special memories. It was an ordinary childhood. I was involved in sport activities. Uh, I really uh, was able to uh, play uh, handball, which is slightly different than the handball here on the highest level. We are uh, second in Slovakia. So uh, I think the childhood was really very ordinary. But what I remember very well uh, was uh, uh, year 1968 when uh, suddenly we woke up and in our uh, fields around, uh, there were suddenly uh, uh, troops of Warsaw uh, packed, and uh, nobody expected this kind of uh, development. And for me as a child, it was uh, something which was stuck in my memory, and uh, I always remember how sad it was uh, to see this uh, Poor soldiers, I mean, uh, uh, in, in Hlohovets, where I was born, uh, it was mostly contingent of Hungarian troops. Uh, um, they were uh, taken from the fields, uh, even with children and, and so on. So this is something which uh, uh, I have lively engraved in, in my memory. Uh, and uh, there are many other uh, uh, things, of course, but uh, this is something uh, which probably also shaped my look uh, onto uh, the democracy and everything which was later uh, suppressed by, by Warsaw backed troops. One of the interesting things I find in your background is you um, did your university studies at Leningrad State University. How did you wind up going there? You know, there was uh, a possibility uh, for students uh, of former uh, socialist Czechoslovakia to uh, go and study abroad, but the only places where actually you, you could study was uh, Russia, Eastern Germany, Hungary, and uh, of course uh, former Soviet bloc countries. And uh, I had an interest in languages, and uh, there was a possibility to study Oriental languages in general. Uh, uh, which uh, could have been Chinese, which could have been other Oriental languages. But by accident, I was selected for studying Arabic. Uh, and again, uh, Middle East was the only part of the world uh, which was open uh, for normal uh, people uh, of former Czechoslovakia uh, outside of the uh, former uh, communist bloc. That, that, that is why I didn't hesitate, and uh, I accepted the offer to study uh, in uh, Leningrad, now uh, St. Petersburg uh, University in, in St. Petersburg. And uh, I think this was also uh, an experience which uh, informed my, my future views and uh, also which educated me uh, about the real situation. Uh, in, in Russia. You were in Leningrad or St. Petersburg when Leonid Brezhnev, the longtime leader of the Soviet Union, died. That's right. Do you have any experience of that or any experience that you could share what happened at that time? You know, it's interesting that you are asking it. Uh, I remember it uh, very vividly. You know, I was working on the streets of St. Petersburg uh, and suddenly it struck me something. I saw a store uh, with fruits. Uh, uh, there were never fruits in uh, a fruit store in, in Russia. 
Suddenly there were bananas uh, in this store. And I said, something terrible uh, must have happened. And really, it was the day when uh, Brezhnev died. And this was the way how Russians, uh, the Russian authorities were trying to calm the situation. Usually, they uh, distracted the attention of people by putting something into the stores which uh, people would be able to buy. Did any of your friends in St. Petersburg comment on what was happening, what they expected? You know, at that time, every uh, everybody was uh, shocked that it happened without any warning. And uh, this was the way uh, how things were happening, actually, in Russia. Even if people uh, around knew, uh, I mean, the leadership, that something was happening with Brezhnev, they would not uh, say it in open. And uh, there was uh, really uh, a feeling of uncertainty. What might happen? What might follow? Uh, of course, Brezhnev was a very old guy. There were many jokes how he was... Uh, uh, talking and, and, and so on. So uh, in the end, everybody expected that uh, uh, his power uh, will come to an end. But at the same time, really, when something was uh, happening uh, like this in, in Russia, people were fearing that it, uh, it might be uh, uh, leading to even a worse situation. And in the end, uh, it was worsening uh, as the following events uh, have, have demonstrated. When you came back to Czechoslovakia, you soon were uh, in the diplomatic service uh, serving in the, in the Middle East. What was your reaction to what you saw in the Middle East at the time? Mm-hmm. First of all, uh, I would uh, come back to my experience from Russia. You know, what, what was my reaction to uh, what was happening there? You know, we are always taught that uh, Russia is something superior, that people are uh, uh, going to live in communism, which will offer to everybody everything uh, which he or she uh, desired. But after this experience of being in Russia, queuing in lines uh, for uh, anything, bread uh, or butter, or uh, nobody could uh, convince me that really uh, Russian and, and communist system in Russia was superior even to system in uh, former Czechoslovakia, which, which was, of course, dominated by communists, but uh, uh, at least uh, we had something to eat and, and, and so on. So when I returned back, of course, I was quite relieved to be in a, a more comfortable place, uh, a little bit better off than uh, people living in Russia. And... Um, I was offered a, uh, a possibility to apply for uh, a job in uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, where was the one of the uh, few places where you could use your your Arabic. So uh, I joined the uh, Foreign Service, and uh, uh, I was focusing since I, I was speaking fluently in Arabic on Arab countries. And uh, at that time, really, uh, our approach to uh, to to Middle East was slightly different because we are always thought that uh, this is actually our uh, friends. Uh, uh, some countries were choosing uh, the socialist orientation. That's why they were considered to be uh, 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 better friends of, uh, of uh, Czechoslovakia than uh, some others. But really, uh, when you were confronted with the reality, you knew that uh, there is something which is uh, not compatible with uh, even the values of our ordinary uh, people, that it was a different world uh, uh, where even in terms of, let's say, human rights, uh, those were much more suppressed even than uh, during the, the uh, communist regime in Czechoslovakia. 
But as I mentioned, there was a lot of trade, a lot of contacts with the uh, Middle East. Uh, and my first posting was in Lebanon, uh, where I was for the first time confronted with a uh, war type of situation when really uh, uh, sometimes uh, we are fearing for our lives and uh, we just wanted to survive. I mean, uh, this this kind of posting, which was uh, one of the most difficult uh, in, in the foreign service, even of Czechoslovakia, because it was during the period when the civil war in Lebanon was uh, in its peak. So I was able really to learn by practical uh, involvement and experience uh, uh, many details, many important facts about about uh, the Middle East, which now is helping me really to, to orient myself in, in uh, the issues of development, uh, current development in the Middle East. One of the things that I think has been difficult for people in the West to understand is what kind of diplomatic freedom did the Czechoslovak embassy have, say, in a country like Lebanon? To what degree was there coordination or direction Mm -hmm. from Moscow? You know, let's say speaking about countries like Lebanon, even at that time, Czechoslovakia was very much focused on trade cooperation. Lebanon was uh, one of our uh, trade partners in spite of the fact that there was a war. But uh, we are able to, to uh, orient our experts uh, sending to Lebanon tires and, and, and so on. Some uh, of our colleagues were also involved in arms trade, but uh, this was not uh, my area. That's why, uh, you know, in, in Lebanon, we didn't feel this kind of constant uh, supervision uh, coming from Russia. Of course, we, uh, from view of orientation of foreign policy, of course, we had to follow the position of uh, Soviet Union and the policy shaped in Prague was really influenced by by Russia. But uh, in Lebanon, as I mentioned, it was a small embassy uh, at some point uh, being uh, the most junior diplomat I uh, was charged affair because I was the only diplomat there. And uh, it was it was really a, sometimes only a matter of survival. Uh, you didn't focus on two big things. And, and, and so, of course, you were following and reporting about the developments, clashes between Christians and Muslims or Syrians and and Christians and and, and so on. But uh, our uh, main task was uh, during those difficult times to to help uh, our citizens. I mean, there were many uh, uh, women, uh, Czech and Slovak women married uh, with Lebanese uh, and uh, during those clashes they wanted to uh, go back uh, to to Czechoslovakia. That's why we were helping them to uh, get out of the country, to get a visa because uh, uh, they had to apply also for visas to get back to to Czechoslovakia and and so on. So it was an interesting experience, and we had much more interaction and uh, and communication with our Western colleagues. Uh, So we are uh, not so much under this kind of supervision like uh, our colleagues in Western world or uh, in some other uh, bigger embassy. So uh, it was quite a mixture uh, of influence and experience, uh, which uh, was quite interesting. And I, I remember really very sad stories because uh, we are also divided, I mean, as a diplomatic community in, in Beirut, uh, mostly diplomats from socialist countries uh, were in Western uh, Muslim Beirut. Uh, 
and people from Western countries were uh, in Eastern Beirut. But uh, as I mentioned, it was a small diplomatic community and uh, we had certain cohesion uh, because uh, everybody was suffering from this kind of insecurity and and so on. So when we are meeting uh, during the receptions, uh, we are mostly exchanging our experience from uh, this kind of shelling and, and uh, difficult life and, and, and so on. And there was really one sad story. I was watching TV and uh, it was one day after we had a reception where we met uh, as a diplomatic community and suddenly they were showing a Spanish ambassador who was taken out of the refrigerator and he was killed uh, uh, during the the clashes and and, uh, shelling uh, with the whole family. So really, this was something which uh, was uh, a a worse experience when uh, you see your colleague being killed and you understand that something like this might happen also to you. Was there in the Foreign Service generally in the 1980s before the end of communism um, was the Communist Party influence strong or was it mostly professional? You know, uh, everything was influenced by by uh, Communist Party. Uh, there was like a parallel government, you know. Uh, the the Central Committee had a supervision over the activity of, of the Foreign Service and uh, all uh, this uh, communist nomenclatura, uh, of course, had uh, always uh, uh, the leading uh, positions in the Foreign Service. But uh, 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 in this area, and that's why I, I felt quite comfortable dealing with Africa, with the Middle East, uh, there was less of uh, influence and, and supervision vision because it was considered to be an area where uh, we are uh, not under such a confrontation with the Western countries and and, and so on. But by that, I'm not saying really, uh, as I mentioned, everything was was supervised. Uh, The policy was shaped by by Central Committee of Communist Party, and uh, uh, there was no independence, uh, you know, that you would uh, think that uh, the Ministry uh, of Foreign Affairs would be independent in formulating foreign policy. No, it was not the case. Uh, so this was the the situation. But at the same time, I would say uh, uh, my colleagues uh, were quite professional. Uh, uh, we were speaking Arabic. We had uh, really a good knowledge of, of the situation uh, in the Middle East, uh, good contacts uh, with uh, our Middle Eastern colleagues and, and, and so on. So I would say really the, the foreign service was quite professional, though under this kind of uh, supervision. It certainly was a change after uh, 1989, just the whole ways of how things were done um, changed. I happened to be in Prague in in 1990 observing a meeting of Western journalists and newly identified influential journalists in, in Eastern Europe and we were invited to the U.S. ambassador's house in Prague and we went along and I happened to be in a car that Jerzy Dinsbeer, who was the foreign minister mm-hmm. at the time, was driving. Dinsbeer was somebody who had been a dissident for yes. 20 years. Somebody like you comes from having been a profession. How hard was it to work in a foreign service after the fall of communism where you had those two different types of people? Surprisingly, you know, and uh, I personally was surprised, you know, uh, those guys like uh, Jerzy Dinsbeer were coming from uh, a situation where they were suppressed and uh, followed by by, uh, communist uh, state police and, and so on. 
But when they came to uh, positions like like Minister of Foreign Affairs, and especially it was the case of Ishi Dinspear, they were not bitter. They uh, really focused on professionalism. They, of course, uh, didn't tolerate uh, uh, that old uh, uh, communist representatives would stay in the in the uh, foreign service, but uh, they appreciated the professionals. That's why, uh, you know, uh, in the beginning, of course, I, I do not want to hide it. Uh, I, I, I fear that really uh, I will be kicked out from uh, the, the foreign service. But, you know, we didn't understand uh, how democracy works. We only uh, saw it from the perspective you were on this side or that side. And when uh, a normal democracy came uh, to Czechoslovakia, then we understood that for younger people, really it's opening new possibilities. And actually this was happening, really. Uh, suddenly uh, you were not distinguished whether you are a good communist or uh, something else. You were judged by by qualities, and Hiji Dinsmir's once again uh, approach was uh, that he was judging people only by qualities. Let's take a break here and listen to some music um, sung by the Slovak opera singer Petr Dvorsky. Music by the Slovak opera singer Petr Dvorsky, appropriate today for our visit with Petr Burian, the Slovak ambassador to the United States. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Must have been interesting in 1992 when you were in the Czechoslovak embassy in Washington, D.C., working for a country that was going to disappear. What did that feel like? You know, initially when I I was uh, selected for this position, I didn't think about uh, uh, the possibility uh, that Czechoslovakia might split. But uh, by the time I was leaving to Washington, it was uh, just after the general elections in which, uh, in our case, uh, parties uh, which were supporting the uh, split of Czechoslovakia took over and were leading then uh, it became clear that uh, Czechoslovakia will split and uh, in the end uh, we are thinking uh, what might happen also with the uh, foreign service. Uh, 
So uh, I was coming to Washington with the task uh, from Federal Foreign Service to follow uh, the relationship between United States and uh, Middle Eastern countries. But suddenly I became one of the most senior Slovak diplomats and I started focusing on uh, helping Slovakia uh, to establish uh, proper contacts with the U.S. representation, uh, whether it was the administration or, or Congress. I remember I was preparing uh, as one of the first tasks uh, the visit uh, of our later president, uh, President Kovac, uh, who was uh, the speaker of the federal parliament uh, at that time. But it was already obvious uh, that he will be one of the leaders uh, of uh, newly independent uh, Slovakia. From uh, this kind of specialization, uh, I turned to be uh, a diplomat uh, who was organizing visits, who was preparing, following uh, the relationship between Slovakia, United States, uh, and preparing conditions uh, for establishing direct diplomatic relations uh, after uh, Slovakia became independent in 1993. And as I mentioned, from the most junior uh, diplomats in the Foreign Service of Czechoslovakia, I said suddenly was leading the embassy. Uh, so it was uh, a big surprise uh, also for me. And uh, in the beginning, I, I thought I was not prepared for this kind of challenge. But uh, with the task, your abilities and, and skills are also growing. And really, when I'm looking back to uh, uh, these times, I was I was re- really very lucky to be in this position, to be able uh, to start building the embassy, to uh, start developing direct cooperation between the United States and Slovakia, and start creating the possibilities and conditions for integration of uh, Slovakia into NATO. You certainly had a very... Uh, limited resources to begin with. Paul Hacker, who was the head of the uh, American embassy uh, in Bratislava, at least had a building that had once housed the U.S. consulate. You had nothing. Where do you start to look for a building? I mean, what do you do? Almost nothing because, uh, you know, what we call uh, this worldwide divorce was really uh, a very cultivated, uh, politically cultivated process. uh, And uh, it was like really dividing the property of two uh, people who are divorcing themselves. It was divided in the ratio of the population two to one. So uh, really Slovakia was uh, not left without anything. Uh, we actually inherited some pieces of properties uh, abroad. Uh, in Washington, uh, we are not so lucky and really uh, for some period of time, we stayed uh, in the later Czech uh, embassy, which was uh, prior to the split Czechoslovak embassy. And we are welcome there. We, uh, Of course, we didn't feel very comfortable to stay there uh, for a long period. And I remember really uh, the time when on, on the first uh, uh, day of our independence, and it was actually uh, December 31st uh, at 6 p.m., uh, the whole embassy went out, I mean, Czechs and, and Slovaks, uh, and we are witnessing uh, the flag-raising ceremony. So we withdrew the uh, former Czechoslovak flag, and the Czech embassy uh, raised uh, a new Czech flag, which was actually the same. But we felt a little bit uh, 
lost, you know, because suddenly, as you mentioned, uh, we didn't have uh, our own building, our own place to work. So uh, my first task was to to find uh, a proper uh, space uh, for the new uh, Slovak embassy. It took a while. So we moved uh, by summer to uh, our own premises, uh, which was a temporary uh, place on Wisconsin Avenue. But we felt on our own. But I, I, I remember uh, how we were living. Uh, it was uh, only a couple of typewriters, uh, two computers, which were very outdated, and, and we had to build uh, almost everything from, from almost scratch. But, you know, we are young. It was really a, a group of young people, uh, my colleagues uh, at the embassy, and we are very enthusiastic to build something uh, for us and to benefit from it. You then had a challenge uh, because the first government in Slovakia was headed by a politician by the name of uh, Vladimir Mečar, who was a tough-minded, outspoken person who had his own particular ideas um, that you might not have agreed with. Uh, was that difficult to represent that kind of government? In a way, yes, uh, because, uh, of course, uh, uh, the role of a diplomat uh, representing the country was uh, represent also the views of the government. So uh, sometimes it was very difficult for us to, to actually explain what was uh, going on in uh, Slovakia at that time and uh, address some issues and uh, some questions of uh, criticism uh, of developments in, in Slovakia. But uh, uh, in a way, we, we uh, knew that we are, uh, uh, in the end, will be heading uh, in the right direction and that uh, uh, the United States will be our main uh, partner. And uh, that's why we are trying to do everything, uh, even in this kind of uh, difficult situation, to build a good basis uh, for future cooperation between our two countries. Uh, we are focusing on, at that time, creating conditions uh, for our integration in NATO, which was our priority. And even Mechiar said, you know, uh, his priority was NATO integration. Uh, the fact that he was uh, doing something which uh, was leading us opposite way, it was a different matter, but nobody uh, was able to uh, to tell me as a diplomat that I'm not representing uh, the the uh, proclaimed direction towards NATO. So I, I really was able to use this uh, declared policy for moving the cooperation between Pentagon and our military forces uh, to a, a higher level. And uh, uh, since we are in Indiana, I was I was uh, participating in establishing the partnership between Indiana National Guard and uh, Slovak military forces, which really uh, was helping us and facilitating our preparation for NATO membership. And uh, that's why uh, at this uh, politically difficult process, we are focusing on more technical issues and waiting for the period when uh, Slovakia could uh, move ahead. Uh, with the, the integration with democracy building and, and, and so on. Were there special problems for you in promoting uh, membership within NATO? Because some of the Slovak population was opposed to the idea, saying, you know, we've been in the Warsaw Pact, we don't need military alliances anymore. The general public uh, or some uh, people in Slovakia didn't understand the, the value of uh, 
of our integration in NATO. That's why uh, since the very beginning uh, we are focusing in the presentation why actually it's important for NATO to be inter- uh, for for Slovakia to be integrated uh, in in NATO. And even some politicians really uh, were opposing our integration. Even some former uh, dissidents were not supporting our NATO integration. Uh, and that's why it was even more difficult. But uh, as soon as uh, people understood that uh, this process is uh, very well connected also with our integration into the European Union, our role was much easier because there was an overwhelming uh, support for EU integration. And as soon as we were able uh, to, to put together coherent platform, why actually uh, uh, and what it will bring for Slovakia in terms of uh, security, prosperity and uh, affiliation with the, the rest of the uh, democratic world, I think uh, people even who hesitated at the beginning, then they, they realized uh, uh, maybe they uh, they do not like it, but uh, it was the only option how to how to really uh, move forward. Uh, and now I would say nobody hesitates. I mean to say that it was a good thing. I mean to integrate into NATO. It provided us a very important comfort and security to concentrate on uh, those issues which were uh, very important for uh, building uh, democratic institutions, stabilizing the economy. Uh, and without NATO membership, I would say really uh, we would not be able to manage uh, uh, to, to do it in such a short period of time. Originally, Slovakia was going to join NATO at the same time as Poland and the Czech yeah. Republic and Hungary, but it was... Uh, delayed because of the political situation. Did that concern you that perhaps Slovakia would not get into NATO at all? You know, we are not thinking about this possibility, but uh, of course we are quite sad when, and I was uh, starting my my uh, assignment in NATO when uh, the three countries, uh, Czech Republic, Hungary and Poland were actually entering NATO. We thought uh, Slovakia uh, by removing those uh, problems uh, of our uh, development uh, and question uh, of uh, democratic uh, development that we would be automatically uh, included among the the countries joining NATO. But, you know, uh, we had to wait uh, uh, for our our turn, for our uh, next possibility. But what was important, we used this uh, time very properly and we focus on the preparation for for NATO membership, uh, transforming our military into a professional force, uh, preparing the the military uh, and putting uh, the military under the supervision of democratic institutions. And uh, by the time when NATO next was deciding, we are uh, fully prepared uh, for joining uh, NATO. I think it was May first, two thousand four, that you joined NATO. Is that the right date? I think you were accepted before, but the formal... Yeah, uh, we were invited in Prague in 2002 and uh, the uh, Prague summit, uh, and it took uh, more uh, than one year uh, for the process of uh, ratification of our agreements on accession to NATO to be completed. And then uh, as of April uh, 2004, we uh, entered uh, the alliance. Actually, it was happening. Uh, it was a couple of days uh, by the end of March, and then uh, we were fully integrated uh, by the end of March, starting uh, as of April as a full member of NATO. 
How did you feel when that was accomplished? I was very proud, you know, uh, and uh, I, I was relieved and I, I had a feeling of satisfaction that uh, we completed this process. And it was actually uh, combined with our accession to uh, the European Union, which, uh, as you mentioned, happened uh, like one month uh, later. But within that process where uh, we uh, disqualified uh, ourselves from uh, NATO integration and the time we are entering EU and NATO together, so many things have happened that uh, few people believed uh, Slovakia would be able to accomplish uh, this, this very difficult and complicated process of integrating uh, ourselves both to NATO and EU at once. But we managed, really, with the uh, government uh, and political uh, parties uh, which were leading the government, very much focused on the reforms, on doing the right things, uh, introducing uh, responsible governance, uh, introducing uh, important economic, uh, social reforms, and, and so on. Uh, we are able, really, uh, to transform the country within a couple of years, which was an extremely uh, complex task and challenge, uh, as I mentioned, which a few people uh, thought we might be able to do. You mentioned briefly before the relationship between the Slovak military and the Indiana National Guard. I suspect there are some of our listeners who are wondering, what is that all about? They've never heard of it. Could you explain how that came about? Just very briefly, uh, it has in a history dating uh, to 1994 uh, when President Clinton came with the initiative uh, of creating Partnership uh, for Peace, uh, which was a tool uh, for bringing uh, former socialist bloc countries closer to NATO, giving them possibility to start transforming their militaries and uh, starting working uh, closer uh, with NATO in uh, uh, creating a security space in uh, our part of, uh, of, of Europe. At the beginning, our countries, uh, so-called Visegrad four countries, took it with some hesitation, with some suspicion that uh, it is a process which might uh, not lead uh, directly to NATO, uh, but uh, it might really lead uh, to something which will be as a replacement for full NATO membership. But since we were so much motivated and we grasped the, the opportunity, started working very closely with uh, our partners in the United States, and we showed uh, that we are fully motivated and fully prepared to assume all the responsibilities coming from NATO membership, it helped us really to speed up the process. Uh, for us, it was a little bit more difficult. Uh, as uh, it was mentioned, uh, our entry was delayed, but the process started there. And Indiana National Guard, and currently we are counting, uh, we had like 800 uh, different projects and activities with uh, Indiana National Guard, starting from teaching us the basic things uh, about the NATO standards, uh, uh, moving to uh, a joint training activities, and uh, currently being able to jointly deploy our forces to most difficult uh, NATO operations like in Afghanistan. So really, this was a process which uh, brought us a lot of benefits. Uh, and as General uh, Amberger, uh, who is the uh, head of uh, Indiana National Guard, uh, was saying today, it's mutually enriching process. Now we can learn from each other uh, in many areas, uh, let's say Slovakia, 
uh, has created a center of excellence uh, in dealing with uh, uh, improvised uh, explosive uh, devices. Uh, we have certain and quite an extensive uh, experience in dealing with the demining and, and so on. So we are bringing something uh, concrete to this partnership. And I think in the end, uh, I would say it was money very well spent, which uh, is even for uh, U.S. taxpayers uh, bringing some concrete benefit in terms that we are able uh, really now uh, contribute to this kind of operation like in Afghanistan, our 350 troops, which for uh, a country of a size uh, of Slovakia and for a military uh, of uh, 16,000 troops uh, like Slovakia is, is quite a significant uh, contribution which uh, is saving uh, money of U.S. Tax, uh, taxpayers not to send those 350 additional troops uh, to these kind of operations. Soon after you completed your role as ambassador to NATO, you became ambassador to the United Nations with the very interesting accomplishment of, of spending a year as one of the rotating members of the Security Council. Yeah. What are your memories of that experience? I think uh, professionally it was uh, uh, the the most enriching uh, part of my career uh, because for actually two years uh, from 2006 until 2007, end of 2007, I was able to participate uh, in the work of the most influential body of the UN dealing with uh, peace and security. And uh, I would uh, call it uh, some kind of exclusive club of countries uh, with special powers, I mean, to decide on those very complex uh, issues like conflicts in Africa, in Europe, uh, anywhere in, in, in the world, and also to, to see how this mechanism operate, which uh, has certain division. Of course, you have permanent and non-permanent members, uh, and non-permanent members uh, might be considered less influential because of their potentials, because of their status. But uh, I guess also in, uh, in this case, Slovakia managed to, to find its niche uh, and uh, contribute to the work of Security uh, Council uh, significantly. I was chairing two very important uh, subsidiary bodies, uh, Sanctions Committee for North Korea and uh, Committee dealing with non-proliferation of weapons of uh, mass destruction uh, to non-state actors. I mean, preventing that those arms uh, would fall into the hands of terrorists or uh, organized crime and, and, and so on. So it was really a big school of diplomacy for me. Uh, even if you think you manage uh, and and uh, learn uh, everything important uh, uh, here, uh, I, I learned that uh, uh, there is a big space uh, for for learning even even more. So briefly, really, this was the the best experience uh, professionally of, of of my life. Since two thousand eight, you have been um, the Slovak ambassador um, to the United States. What's been your most difficult challenge during that period? You know, during my career, uh, I was always uh, building something. So I was building first the embassy in Washington. Uh, then I was building the first uh, mission to NATO. Then I was building a team to Security Council. And when I came to, to Washington, 
I was relieved. Everything was built already. Uh, we had a beautiful uh, building for the embassy. We have accomplished almost everything in terms of integration. We even uh, before my arrival or during my arrival were able to resolve one uh, of the last outstanding issues, which was inclusion of Slovakia into visa waiver uh, program of the uh, U.S. administration. So I, I was uh, uh, thinking, and I'm joking uh, always, that uh, uh, having nothing to do uh, uh, in, in, in Washington, but, uh, you know, uh, Washington is an important place. Uh, there are always uh, some important issues uh, to deal with, uh, whether it's uh, bilateral cooperation relationship. And we realized that uh, we didn't use... Uh, the benefit uh, and and uh, the potential of our economic uh, cooperation to uh, to full extent as uh, it would correspond to to uh, to our priorities that's why my my focus now is really to to start looking to the possibilities where uh, two countries can work uh, closer uh, in the economic area in the uh, area of exchanging experience uh, from uh, innovation, uh, transferring technologies, and, and so on. And again, this is a, a two-way street uh, where Slovakia has something to offer and where uh, Slovak partners can uh, uh, bring something into the partnership with the U.S. companies. That's why I'm trying to focus on this area and also uh, on area of uh, expanding the cooperation uh, between uh, other universities uh, and universities in the United States. In 1996, while you were working for the Slovak Embassy in Washington, um, you wrote a letter to the New York Times in response to a story that reported the Czech Republic was doing well without Slovakia. Is there still international competition between Slovakia and the Czech Republic today? You know, it's uh, interesting. I, I already do not remember this uh, article. But there was always this kind of uh, attitude towards Slovakia that uh, we are this underdog. We are a little bit less developed part of Czechoslovakia. But now I'm, I'm really proud that... Uh, we managed to catch up uh, in many terms uh, with the uh, with our Czech uh, brothers, uh, and um, uh, really be equal partners also uh, for for them uh, in terms of trade cooperation. And uh, we have even demonstrated that something uh, is done even better in in Slovakia, which is always very good for for this uh, partnership. And I would say uh, the relationship between Czechs and Slovaks. Uh, are historically on the on the best and highest level. We do not blame each other that somebody is paying more to this relationship. We have our destiny in our hands, and now we can fully enjoy our friendship and and closeness. I mean, uh, uh, whether it's culture, whether it's common history, and uh, really, um, uh, you see it on on uh, basic uh, symbolic uh, things like. Uh, when our president is elected, his first trip uh, leads to Prague, and when Czech president is elected, he goes directly to Bratislava the first uh, or second day, and and, and so on. So 
By saying that, I would like to say that really, for the first time, we we can enjoy the, this kind of equal uh, partnership with Czechs, and uh, uh, we decided to continue our fruitful cooperation on a sub-regional level, also with uh, other uh, neighbors and. Uh, Uh, I would like to mention uh, a very fruitful cooperation between so-called Visegrad four countries, uh, our neighbors, Poland, uh, Czech Republic and Hungary, which uh, again is demonstrating that when you are working together, you are uh, much stronger uh, as, as uh, an entity uh, than uh, when you would try to do something individually. One question that some listeners might be interested in because of uh, what happened in Japan uh, during the earthquake and tsunami is the issue of nuclear power. Slovakia is very dependent on nuclear power, in fact, has exported some of that um, nuclear power. What do you think is going to happen um, given the changed circumstances? Uh, there was a point uh, in, in our development when there was a discussion where to – lead our uh, energy policy. It was uh, uh, by the end of the uh, 90s uh, and there was uh, even an idea to abandon uh, the uh, nuclear power. But uh, with the time uh, when uh, there was uh, uh, a deteriorating energy situation, energy crisis, uh, and especially uh, some problems in deliveries of oil and gas uh, from Russia, we realized we do not have so many options, I mean, in uh, uh, preserving our energy security. And we have to rely uh, on a distribution of our uh, energy resources. And nuclear power uh, is uh, is one of them. And currently uh, we have uh, completed... Uh, Uh, nuclear power plants in uh, Mochovce. Uh, we are uh, even thinking about uh, rebuilding or building a new power plant uh, on, on the place of former uh, power plants uh, in Jaslovske Bohunice. And uh, we are also at the same time looking to the possibility to use some uh, other uh, alternative sources of energy. So We uh, do not uh, rely only on one one source, but we understand that really these these uh, sources should be properly uh, diversified, and uh, we cannot rely on one source coming uh, from our uh, eastern border, uh, uh, our eastern neighbors from Russia uh, only. One of the things that Americans have difficulty with is making a connection with Slovakia. Uh, if you ask them who the famous Slovaks are, they might mention Dubček or older people who were hockey fans might mention Stan Makita. Mm -hmm. What can you say to Americans? What should they know about Slovakia to help them remember its importance? You know, it's quite interesting how few people know about Slovak contribution to building uh, even American society and about famous Slovaks uh, or Slovak Americans uh, like uh, Andy Warhol. Uh, uh, his family moved from Slovakia and they uh, settled in Pennsylvania. 
uh, now we have a new generation of hockey player like Peter Bondra, uh, f- uh, many others uh, uh, who who are, who are playing in different teams of uh, national uh, ho- hockey league like Marian Hossa, and really uh, uh, the number of, of uh, sportsmen representing Slovakia in different NHL teams is is uh, quite significant. And there are many others like Banich, who, uh, Father Banich, who uh, invented uh, a parachute, which is a little known uh, fact, and, and, and so on. So we need to be really uh, uh, better in, in promoting Slovakia in the United States and this kind of uh, interrelations uh, between United States and Slovakia. But the best way how to promote Slovakia in the United States is to promote tourism. You know, It's uh, a saying that it's uh, better to see once than to uh, listen or hear uh, 1,000 times. And uh, this is something which we are trying to to, uh, focus on, uh, also benefiting from a visa waiver program to bring our people here because also our people are not so much familiar with the reality uh, and real life in the United States. Uh, One would say we should know everything, but it's not the case. Uh, and also, I would love to bring more tourists, more people uh, coming to to Slovakia to see by their own eyes that uh, we are not different than uh, United States. Uh, that we, we have wonderful nature, uh, that we are a modern country with uh, uh, important historic uh, traditions. So this is the picture uh, which I, I would love to uh, promote more in the United States. And we have a series of activities like uh, roadshow promoting opportunities for doing business in Slovakia, for tourism and, and so on. And sometimes we uh, work together with our neighbors again, promoting region as a destination for, for tourism. So this is uh, the best way uh, how, uh, how I think uh, people uh, will learn about uh, Slovakia. But uh, once again, sports uh, is, is, uh, is really something which is bringing Slovakia on the map. I, I, I remember last year during the World Cup uh, in South Africa when Slovakia was able to beat Italy, former uh, World Cup champion, Slovakia suddenly became uh, very visible and um, was recognized also uh, in the United States uh, and many other uh, important developments. That brings us to the conclusion of this conversation. Our guest today has been Petr Burian, the ambassador from Slovakia to the United States. Pan Velvislanets, Diakujeme Zarosovor. It was nice talking to you. We close with more music representing um, Slovakia, the country of Ambassador Burian. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson.
The program you just heard was recorded in September of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.